Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, it's 2pm on Friday afternoon. Welcome to an emergency podcast with me, Dorian Linsky, plus Roz Taylor and Ian Dunt. Tomorrow, it's the final vote on Johnson's deal and the big people's vote march too. It feels very much like this is the moment of truth and it's going to be a very long moment of truth. <laughs> but it's not over till it's over. We are not giving up. Uh, so what's going to happen? We will start with the deal. Ian, I've seen some hilarious Scooby-Doo memes in which the mask of Johnson's deal is taken off and it's just the May deal. Um, but obviously it's not exactly. How, how And a lot of people thought he wasn't even going to get a deal. What, what do you think he sort of achieved? What's substantially different? Yeah, well, first of all, he got a deal, which I think loads of us... I mean, I, would, I was not thinking that was the direction that we were travelling We weren't even in, sure if he know. wanted... Well, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. I was. Mm-hmm. I always thought he yeah, wanted to. Yeah, I think he deal. did say uh, once or twice. We, when we, <laughs> yeah, and we've had we've had others as well. There's a couple of people out there who always thought this is a strategy. Ten points but, for way, Rosendor. Indeed. <laughs> but I think it's, you don't know. I mean, I don't think that at any point it was necessarily true that he was definitely going for it or definitely going for something else. It's just the way that it pans out at a certain time. In fact, some of the reports this morning suggest that that phone call with Merkel, paradoxically, you know, that they lost their shit over uh, like a week ago, mm. paradoxically shifted him into accepting the Northern Ireland. We, we don't. We don't don't know, and we don't know whether it was a plan or the way along. However, he had he did manage to reopen the withdrawal agreement, which for a long time the EU said they wouldn't do, and lots of us sort of said, well, look, they won't they won't do it. And he has managed to change the backstop. So on that stuff, there is no way of getting around that fact that that was stuff that we didn't think was doable, that it has in fact proved doable. However, that should not colour us too much to just how much he's capitulated on the items that the EU has put forward for him. And those have quite severe consequences, not just for the UK and for, I think, the future constitutional arrangements, but also for the strategic incentives of both sides of Parliament, of the sort of ERG, jihadist types, and of the more moderate sort of purge Tories and Labour pro-deal guys. And did the EU make any uh, major concessions, or was it, was it really on our side? <sighs> what kind of concessions have they really made? I mean, because taking it from when they were negotiating with May, this is pretty much what they wanted. I mean, they don't really like the, the dual customs thing because in, in some way that is going to involve the, e, the UK um, sort of policing the EU's border and it is going to be very, very complicated. So they don't really like that and they've given on it. It's, it's quite hard to think of much else on VAT, on sort of... I mean, it's, it's hard to think of anything that they really gave in on. On the fact of with, uh, reopening the withdrawal agreement, they did, which Juncker mm. said they didn't, yeah. but then you can't really rely on Juncker, as I'm sure we'll get on to later, to be uh, entirely consistent. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Tusk's, Tusk's uh, farewell to Britain was very touching, but it also seemed a little... Oh, it just it, it made it, I, I depressing. I, it, it made me crack up again. I'm sorry. It, it just always does whenever he says something like that, and I have to stop because I, I get too too sad. He's like somebody <laughs> at the end of a movie, just sort of letting someone. It's not like Rick in Casablanca letting her get on the plane. Yeah, exactly. It's just like that, but it's worse. I've never really been touched by Casablanca, but I am by Donald Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> 
some would say that given the um, the sort of length of the deal and the complexity of it, that perhaps shouldn't be uh, giving people uh, a couple of days to read it and then, you know, a few hours to pass it or not. I mean, is that just... I mean, obviously, that's suboptimal. <laughs> um, but kind of inevitable... I mean, is there a real kind of... Is there a real problem with that? Do you think there are going to be people who are going into the, the lobbies not really knowing... Um, anything beyond the way it's been spun. Definitely there will be, but I mean, the, and there's also plenty of MPs, let's not mess around, and no matter how long they were to have with a long, complicated legal document, would not have the capacity to read it, nor the interest in doing so. <laughs> I'm, so imagining yeah. Mark, I'm imagining Mark Francois like a dog with a newspaper. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> occasionally barking angrily. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but ultimately, with most of it, it I mean, the, the text matters, and the, the, the dual custom stuff is just obscenely complicated. And I think very few MPs will be basing it on, on the sort of minutiae of it. What ultimately matters in that document is the, the manner of trust that you have in where we go next. Okay? And, this is, and so this takes a bit of explaining, right? So before, when you had the backstop, basically what Theresa May was saying was, look, you guys, you, you Brexiters, you've got all this chance to do these alternative arrangements. And if you fail to do them, the insurance policy kicks in. And the reason they hated it was because they secretly knew that they were never going to be able to do those arrangements and the insurance policy was going to kick in. Now the backstop is gone. It's turned into a front stop. The relationship with Ireland is supposed to be a permanent one. There is a consent lock, the stuff that can happen in Stormont, mm. but it's, in, it's envisioned as a permanent <clears throat> one. Now that changes things because this stuff kicks in basically in a few months. The transition only goes until the end of next year. Now, on that, on that basis, once you get there, you get another no-deal cliff edge. It's not the same as this one. It doesn't involve citizens' rights. It doesn't involve the budget. But it still has the other effects of going, you will fall onto WTO rules. Now, on that basis, you are now going to have ERG guys looking at it. And this is happening right now. This is where the meat of, of the real issue about tomorrow is happening right now. ERG guys looking at that and going well, we're pretty assured by Boris Johnson that he's going to go, he's going to try and get a majority and we'll just be able to force the WTO and any Brexit, you know, in a year and a half because the strategic assessment has changed. And when you look then at the purge Tories and when you look then at the Labour Pro dealers, they'll be looking at that and thinking, actually, is this a deal or is this a deferral of the no-deal dynamic for about 18 months? And he's also counting on being able to get rid of the DUP. What he wants to do is go, of course, for a quick general election in which he will no longer have to depend on the DUP's vote and it shouldn't be underestimated just how much the DUP dislike this deal. I mean, uh, mm. a, a pretty anti-DUP academic I was I was uh, reading yesterday was was basically saying he's he's thrown the DUP under a bus. That may not matter to most people in in the in in, in the rest of Britain, but it matters in Northern Ireland. Mm. Well, the um, the Brexiters seem to be the kind of you know non-Tory Brexiters seem to be split on this. The Farage is like this isn't he's he's sort of no deal or bust, isn't he? He's just like oh no, you haven't heard he's a Remainer now. Yeah, he's, he's very cross. Oh yes, yeah. he's very cross because of the um, he's very they cross might not get an extension. For ruling out the brilliant Ben Act, which as yeah. you know he's yeah, yeah, been yeah. a huge supporter of for some time. <laughs> it's actually to be honest, if this shit is worth anything, it is worth watching Nigel Farage turn his entire political body inside just out. Just because the EU said something. <laughs> well, really, because it's, cause it's Cause he's... against his interests, right? Like, I mean, imagine if, if there is an election before a deal is passed. Uh, in other words, if this gets rejected and they extend and there's an election, then Brexit Party's got a pretty good shot at causing major mm. damage. If a deal is passed, fucking Brexit. Brexit Party's it's, as fucked as anyone. It's fucking hilarious, though, when you think about it. Like, the idea that the Brexit Party, literally called the Brexit Party, wants to kind of, like, stall 
Brexit in order to serve the electoral interests of the Brexit party. <laughs> it's like, mate, the what, clue is in the name. Whatever means necessary. But Leave.eu um, took a break from racist bans um, to actually back the deal. And so presumably this is with Banks's, Aaron Banks's uh, endorsement. Um, and so that's the first time they've fallen out with Farage or that... Mm. Certainly recently, because they seem to have come around to, I suppose, what we were saying a long time ago was that if you were DERG, EU, whatever, and thank God, you know, we they didn't behave like this, but we were saying, well, you just get it done, right? I mean, I hate that, uh, not a terrible phrase. You would get something <laughs> passed. You would get Brexit to be seen to have happened. Um, and actually, of course, the reason that it fell was because of the kind of hardline Brexiters going, no, not this kind. Uh, so is this like a, an outbreak of, of just pragmatism from Leave.eu? Um, yeah, I think it is, basically. And also I think they're taking their cue from Dominic Cummings. Um, it's interesting, I've been hearing things uh, about Cummings and suggesting that, that Boris Johnson not being quite so much in thrall to Cummings over the uh, past couple of weeks, thinking that he's gone a bit too far with his rhetoric. But on the other hand, that, that oh, it may all just be Machiavellian bullshit. And uh, <laughs> Cummings may deliberately have seemed to go too far in order that um, he could seem, uh, Boris could seem to be in charge. Yeah, it, it, I, I think they, they ultimately... Um, think that this is as much as they can reasonably get away with in the time available now. Mm. And they want, uh, Cummings wants to get out of Downing Street by 31st October so he can have his mysterious operation. So it's important that he gets it done. Maybe they're going to insert his soul. (laughs) I think he needs to have his skull expanded to accommodate his (laughs) enormous brain because it's very tight Yeah, but the the, the scars would show, wouldn't they? (laughs) Let's go full Mekong. Um... But, of course, I mean, that brings us to the... I mean, one of the, the, the problems where we were saved before, we were saved by the uh, by the ERG, you know, Spartans, and now, obviously, the numbers and the DUP. And the reason the numbers are dicey now is that a lot of, you know, a lot of the... Spartans are just a stupid name. A lot of the ERG <laughs> wankers are, um, you know, are, again, taking this pragmatic... They're saying, actually, probably we should not thwart Brexit again. Um, and so those numbers suddenly get very kind of shaky and then there's all kinds of trouble on the among the sort of Labour pro dealers um, and it just seems to change each day. Ian, could you give us a quick assessment of, of where the numbers are and who seems likely to go for it of, of those Great. people? Um, so I would be expect. I don't know which way it's going to go. I genuinely think this is properly knife edge and 50-50 and in fact pretty much all the betting markets suggest that. Um, I would be surprised if it was even a double-digit margin of victory for either side. So you've got four key groups that Boris Johnson would be looking for. So he's going for, so let's say, ERG, DUP, Purge Tories, Labour pro-dealers. Mm. Okay? So he lost the DUP. And that, I mean, without that, we would now be fucked. Like, this would be a very different emergency podcast because there would be no hope whatsoever. But he lost the DUP. So that takes the 10 votes, but more importantly, it offers a political cover. Now, we thought that would have more effect than it actually has done. But in actual fact, I mean, I'd have thought more ERG guys, up to 12, 15 of them would would move. That does not seem to be the case at the moment. At the Mm. the moment, the ERG seems to be holding pretty firm. So then you look at purged Tories. And of course, a bunch of Tories have now joined parties like the Lib Dems or or others like um, Dominic Grieve are... um, are going to obviously vote against against this thing. 
Others are more, and some definitely will vote for it. So Nicholas Soames, for instance, has said, I will always go for a deal. Others are a bit more questionable. Like I was thinking about Rory Stewart today. I was thinking about him. I mean, he wants yeah. to run for London mayor. And I will just lightly suggest to you, if you want to be <laughs> mayor of London, you better have a fucking good story to tell about how you didn't support Boris Johnson's deal. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Is it, I mean, you look at someone like Philip Hammond, potentially also questionable. I mean, Oliver Letwin has said he will definitely vote for the deal, but there are very interesting things going on with him, which we should discuss in a minute. Then the Labour MPs are split. We think probably about seven at the moment would go for it. Um, even Kate Hoey is questionable because Kate Hoey, of course, often goes with the DUP. Uh-huh. So we would see we would see how that goes. On the other hand, you know, Caroline Flint, Wilmers, I think will almost certainly vote for the deal. People like Stephen Kinnock, it's just not clear. Gloria De Piero, not clear. And everything will... I mean, at the moment, the most important group, because it's the, the, there's the most numbers that are open to change, are those Labour pro-dealers. Yeah, can we just dig in to the psychology of the Labour pro-dealers? Because it <laughs> seems know. to me, and my role here is basically to be confused man in the street with these simplistic <laughs> readings of situations <laughs> that you then complicate, um, is that... There is absolutely no incentive because if you are seen to be one of a handful of Labour MPs that gets it over, um, that gets it over the line, you are hated within your party. But the story, the top line, which Joe Swinson will of course leap on, is that Labour MPs got it over the line. Mm. Um, so also, you've really hurt your party, and also you've allowed Boris Johnson to celebrate a major victory. And if he then goes into a next election, going, I've done the impossible, I've delivered Brexit. Like, it, it just seems... I literally cannot work out what the incentive is. What hope do these people have? How does Kinnock or Flint think this is going to help their political futures? I would say there's two reasons, and they're quite powerful, and they may not be very apparent to us sitting in, uh, as we are in London most of the time, although some of us do occasionally leave it, I think. But um, <laughs> the first is that these are often MPs in uh, non-London constituencies, um, people like Caroline Flint, who um, are, they tell us, being told repeatedly by their constituents on the doorstep, just get this thing done. I'm so bored of Brexit. And that is bound to have an effect because listening to your constituents does have an effect. That's why uh, the anti-Brexit campaign is urging everyone to write to their EU, uh, yeah, to, yeah. To their MPs today. The other real uh, reason why they're so worried about this is because they really want to move on. They too want to stop talking about Brexit. A lot of them do actually care a lot about issues like austerity and they think, misguidedly in my opinion, but they think that getting Brexit done, in inverted commas, will enable them to take the fight to the Tories on issues like the NHS and schools and all that. So they actually imagine that getting Brexit done will just not be of any significant benefit to the Tories? They think go, well, let's just forget that ever happened. Uh, Level playing field, let's just do other issues. Like... They think it will take the poison out. And this is also the argument that people like Roy Stewart put forward. It will take the poison out of British politics and it will enable us to focus on different kinds of policy. That is their thinking. Different kinds of poison. (laughs) (laughs) Different policies, even. Um, I do think, I mean, it is mad. It really is a mad thing to, to, to just get behind. And even just the amount of blame you will take, you will be known for all time on this thing. Because the other important thing for MPs to remember is the fact that. This deal is not going to be a popular deal for very long. 
You know, you look in... I mean, it's not very popular now. Even now, most people asked about it in the snap poll that YouGov put out. Even even though most people in that poll suggested that MPs should pass it, most of them already thought it was a bad deal. A big majority for don't know. Like, no one is going to... In two years' time, no one is going to be praising this deal that, you know, carves up Britain. And, and when they realise that there's years more of this fucking talk, especially with new artificial timetables, and we're still talking about no deal in, like, fucking 12 months' time, no one's going to be happy about this thing. And your name will be attached in a way that it isn't if you're a Tory MP. If you're a Tory MP, you went with the herd, you went with the flow. If you stood out as a Labour guy and helped Boris Johnson get his deal across the line, you, that, that shit is not going to go down well for you. So it is astonishing to me that just on the most selfish of, of assessments, they are still there considering that they might do uh, it. I, so, Johnson has managed to reframe the debate very successfully, though, to present it as bad uh, as as no deal is the alternative to his deal, and to re, uh, to to um, rephrase Theresa May, a uh, bad deal is better than no deal. Um, and we all have to admit that bad deal is better than no deal, however much we loathe bad deal. Shouldn't Labour, though, in order to minimise the damage to the whole party, be very firm? about withdrawing the whip from anyone who supported the deal because they seem to go... I keep keep reading... Twitter basically drives me mad because it's constantly, like, political reporters going, I've just been told, uh, update. Like, everything's just... No, not that, now this. Remember with the DUP, (laughs) where it's just like, DP have gone for it. No, they haven't. Yes, they have. No, they haven't. Yes, they have. No, they haven't. Um, And it's the same thing with this removing the whip thing, but surely it's extremely wise for the leadership to go, well, look, we can't literally... Strong arm you and march you through the right lobby, mm. but we can at least go. There's going to be a real penalty because if those handful of Labour MPs swing it, you say obviously very bad for them personally. But then if they're not sufficiently censured by the leadership, again, massive Lib Dem attack line is the leadership doesn't care. The leadership let them do it. I'm not comfortable with that. I, I sort of don't think that anyone should have the whip drawn on this issue. I mean, I wasn't comfortable about it with the to- purge mm. Tories. I'm not comfortable about it now. I think it's different if you're saying, right, you can't sit in the front on the front bench. That's a, a sort of a different matter. Right. But I can see how it's a moment of conscience, and especially if your constituents are one way and you're another. I don't really think we need strong. But but anyway, I'd also suggest there's already an incentive there, just because of the kind of noises from momentum, which you know suddenly we're fucking. I mean, Jesus Christ, the weird bedfellows. I'm waking up in the morning and just horrified by this. Like, oh, the DUP, Nigel Farage, and momentum are our new allies. It's like some mm. kind of what hellish world have we landed in? <laughs> but I never. They're basically saying, look, we will we will fuck you up if you do this thing. And I think that sort of has that at least some sort of penalty that I think is probably more severe than the stuff that they're getting from the leadership. I appreciate the point of principle you're making. I think I've just become quite. I've obviously become brutally pragmatic and illiberal on this one. <laughs> I was like, no, I suppose it is bad if you withdraw the whip. But on the other hand, destroy them. <laughs> this, is, this, is what, this is what Brexit does to us. New so, politics. Yeah. <laughs> so there's um, another issue, of course, was the hope that a confirmatory referendum would be sort of tagged onto the bill. But then there's a whole... Again, we have a whole numbers issue. Um, is there any likelihood that there would be people that would that it would only go over the line with a few people, you know, with a few people, if the confirmation referendum was tagged on? Is there? Is it kind of like arithmetically likely? 
Well, I think uh, if Johnson loses his vote, there will be quite a few people saying that he should have attached a confirmatory referendum to it because then he would have got it through because I think he would, no question, uh, almost no question if he had. Um, people like Hillary Benn even might have considered voting for it, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think if he loses it, that may come to be seen as a mistake. But I think the chances of it happening now, although Ian will be more plugged into what is going on in the commons, minds of the commons than I am, are small. Yeah, I mean, it's not happening. I mean, they're not going to put it on before the deal. Everything is about after. You know, maybe there would be one. You know, if the deal is voted down, maybe there would be one. And even this, I think, I think is a slightly fantastical idea that even if it was passed and they might try and chuck something onto the Queen's speech or onto the legislation to pass a deal to do it. And I just think, no, if, if this thing was to get through on a meaningful vote, then I'm, it, I, I, I kind of think that that stuff is probably going to be dead. I mean, you fight the fight because you've got to, take the, you've got to go for it, but I, I think the chances there will be pretty slim. And the reason they backed down was because they didn't think that they had the numbers. So they sort of thought, well, look, it makes us, you know, it creates a momentum around our defeat ahead of the thing. And what we really need to do is to defeat this, this, um, this deal. You know, I mean, that is not, it doesn't make any sense to me. To me, it makes much more sense to attach it. But, you know, what makes sense to me and what makes sense to the fucking House of Commons are two very distinct things. You mentioned earlier we wanted to talk more about what was going on with Oliver Letwin, so yeah, let's do that. It's not a phrase you hear very often. <laughs> no. um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the main news today to me seems to be to be bafflingly under-discussed, which is this amendment that Oliver Letwin has put forward that basically sort of tries to course-correct what, what was in the Ben Bill, of basically saying, well, look, this is all on a meaningful vote, to go, actually, this is all on the legislation. So what it does is it says, look... We're not actually going to vote on this today. It will be attached to the, to the thing tomorrow because we're not actually really going to vote on this. We're just going to recognise it's been here and we will make our call when the legislation is published. So then, because the Ben Act still counts, the November, the 19th, oh, beg your pardon, October 19th date still kicks in. Extension is then asked for and received, we expect. And we would not know what was happening until the legislation was published. Now, that makes a really big difference because, A, it buys time. At the moment, you notice the way that momentum was what was working for Boris Johnson. Momentum and lack of details. You could just pummel it through, get it done, get it done, don't worry about the details. The more that you see the details come out, the more you see the ERG talking about the new cliff edge versus, you know, what the purge Tories would think, the more difficult it becomes for him because the innate trade-offs of it become clearer. So this is quite an interesting move. It also, by the way, means that we could get to tomorrow. It's actually quite likely. We'll get to tomorrow and then the first vote that happens, you're like, oh, turns out, there's nothing going on today, which is going to be quite a fucking... Like, it's going to be quite a denouement to the whole thing, um, which would be odd. But it would, I think, be very, very positive because it buys time to scrutinise and it buys time to highlight the divisions that are currently being passed over by him. Now, the names on that are interesting. Oliver Letwin, going to vote for a deal, supporting it. And Philip Hammond, I think, supporting it. They're, to me, it seems quite plain that there is a majority in the Commons for that thing. You've got to assume the opposition parties get behind it. But when guys like that who would otherwise vote for the deal are prepared to do it, there's at least a potential majority and I think a real one. I think there's a very, very good chance it'll, it'll pass and that will completely change the dynamics of this whole thing. One thing that a lot of people might be wondering about in all this kind of uh, typhoon of news is if the deal is passed, God forbid, uh, are we leaving the EU on the 31st of October or is it going to take a, a technical extension? 
We are leaving on the 31st of October. However, we will be in a transitional sort of period after that. And for example, if you want to, by any, for any reason whatsoever, to move to the EU and settle there, you have, I think, until uh, the end of December 2020 to do so. After that, you basically can't anymore. So there's various um, uh, things. Things will will continue, uh, but uh, in, as as was for a while. But then they will change. <laughs> but what I mean is the October 31st deadline is not going to be bumped back into November because there was talk of... It might no. be a little bit. I mean, it no. might be a couple of weeks because they've got the legislation here, they've got the legislation in the European right, okay, Parliament, yeah, yeah. but you're talking a couple of, you know, basically yeah. everything starts happening very quickly. It would be very, very, very fucking bad. I can't try... I am basically, for the first time, I feel... Like, I am genuinely anxious now. Like, last night, I actually was struggling to sleep. Like, I was, there's, like, a podcast I listen to where it's just these two kind of stoner American intellectuals talking about shit like yo-yos and baths or whatever. And I, like, I'm almost hypnotically unable to get to the end of one of those podcasts. Like, as soon as their voices come on, I fall asleep. And last night, I was like, I've just got to the end of this fucking podcast. Like, how is that? It must be actually quite whatever. So, I mean, I su- you know, I the, suppose we the got consequences used, are severe. We got used to it not happening. We got used to that anxiety, I remember, around May's deal. And it just got to the point of just like, ah... Oh, it's not happened again. Ah, oh, Brexit hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, how oh, Boris Johnson's been defeated in the Commons, you know, mm-hmm. six times in a row or whatever. And he kind of got used to this just like, just this ongoing kind of like, not that we're winning, but they're not winning either. Yeah, exactly. And this is the first time in ages where it's actually kind of moved to something. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I was almost hoping that they were going to go try and go, you know, because of the no deal thing, that was a much easier thing to, to, to battle. It was such a nightmare, and hence you get the, um, you know, you get the Ben Act, whereas the, this deal, and then it's just so kind of, it is seductive to certain people that just want to go, oh, you know, let's let's just get it out of the way, mm. and that's I suppose why I'm sort of anxious for the first time in a long time, because you can understand that appeal in a way that I could never. There's no part of my brain that understands the appeal of No Deal, mm-hmm. but I get why some people would just go. You know that sense as well that we we only ever have to lose once. You know, like they have to lose yes. so many times. Yeah. Like you yeah, know, yeah. even if you lose it, you still have to lose an election. You know, after you have to, they have to lose this vote, they then have to lose an election after that, and then they have to lose a referendum. You know, there's like all these mm. things that have to happen for us to win, and and on any of these, it's just as soon as it comes down to it, we only have to lose once. And so you just get brought down. I always have this sort of image in my mind of like the defences, and I was sort of like, well, defence one was like the EU would never sign up to this stuff. Defence two was like the DUP wouldn't support it. Defence three is like mm-hmm. when you get to the you know having a referendum on the legislation. Defence four was like the, the vote on it, and it was like apart from the DUP one, all those defences fell. And of course, for Dan, you're just sitting there going like, well, fucking hell, I'm not feeling so great about this right now and um, I'm pretty much still in that space and oh, we should just just before we before we sort of wrap up I just want to talk about another depressing thing Roz <laughs> do you th- <laughs> another depressing thing Roz another depressing thing I could have done yo-yos but I'm going to go for this instead okay. um, Roz if Boris Johnson gets the deal through then there's an election he's the guy that you know mm-hmm. did it by October 31st and brought, he could actually say, brought people together and all that lot. He will. Um, and there are some Labour MPs and therefore this sort of, you know, shit attaches to Labour. Um, and you get many angry Remainers. And of course there'll be angry Remainers, you know, anyway, thinking of, well, if you'd had different leadership, different people in the leadership office, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is it basically pretty much nailed on that the Tories would then win the next election? I think it's pretty likely. 
Um, because and they, there is no way that we would even got to this stage in the process had we had a decent opposition, I believe. But uh, we not in that situation. We have Corbyn, who is unpopular with the electorate, full stop. And I don't think that's going to change, unfortunately. However, um, there is still a lot to fight for, even if we don't uh, run even if we can't run people on a explicitly remain a ticket and and, and remain uh, packed in individual constituencies we can we can still try and create a, a better result through those kinds of pacts, uh, that's that's still possible. We can still create a more, I would say, balanced parliament. Um, it will be fucked up by FP, the first person post, but, you know, there, there, is, there is still a lot to fight for. It will feel like if, if he wins his vote, it will feel terrible and it will be a hard thing to get over, but you've got to take it to the next fight. You've got to regroup and then you've got to think, right, there's so much to take on, so much to fight at the moment. Like Johnson himself to be exposed. Yeah. It won't, he won't, he will, his ability to deceive will not continue forever. He will, he will eventually, his, the shine will go off. And there are so many issues at the moment in, in national politics and international politics that are still to fight for. And it's, Oh, it will. It, yeah, this will be a setback if we lose. Well, if, if we lose, but there will we can regroup, and there are many, many fronts on which we can fight. And I don't altogether rule out um, a, in the end deciding to rejoin the EU, as Donald Tusk even even hinted at. I don't rule that out. I don't think we should write off that possibility completely. No, no, no. Of course, no. I mean, these are all things that we should, talk, um, you know, talk about after we know what's sort of happened. On Saturday, but of course, um, there is going to be a massive protest march on Saturday, which we will all be at, and hopefully Not it me. will be. I'll be in Parliament. Oh yeah, yeah. But I'll wait for you guys from my office window. Yes, but I've got like a dummy version of you. Oh, cool. Which I'm going to put on a just a stick. When did you make that? That's quite freaky. I've been making it ever since the show started. It takes a very long time. It's eerily, eerily accurate. Handcrafted. It's got a little. You pull the string on the back. It laughs like you. Oh wow! It's oh. really unsettlingly beautiful. <laughs> that's that's really scary. That's like some sort of Guy Fawkes thing. You, you don't want any levers to get hold of it, or they'll throw you on a bonfire. <laughs> um, so yes, or, you know, all of us except really, and will be there. And um, what if the bad news comes in while we're on the march? Firstly, is that likely in terms of parliamentary procedure? Is it likely to come around? sort of lunchtime? Didn't, no, no, it's not. Um, it, it probably would have been um, because the government was trying to, you know, not content with only allowing two days to look at it. It wanted, like, basically an hour and a half to debate it, and that was, that was your lot, mate. But there was an amendment passed uh, yesterday which, which stopped that from happening. We'll allow it to go on longer, so we have basically no idea when, when that thing is going So we'll probably get to do the march before, we finish the march before we actually find out what's going on. Yeah, my guess is there'll still be a bunch of people in the streets, but we won't be at the most marchy-marchy part of the march by the time that it comes in. Probably uh, be Michael Heseltine up there. And how do we, how do we keep our morale up, Roz? Oh, well, it's it is it's tough. Uh, yeah, loud music, cold swims. 
Loud music and cold swims. I don't think there's any cold swims on the march, but they read loud music. Well, you could always throw yourself in the tap. No, I mean, I'm not advocating that. Um, But, uh, yeah, there's loud music. And I love that thing when the march is when you get that kind of wave thing. I think they have it in football stadiums, but I've never actually been to a football match, so I don't know if they really do or not. But when everyone starts going, yeah, and then it kind of rolls back through the crowd, it's incredibly exhilarating, isn't it? Are you describing a Mexican wave? Yeah, Yeah. I probably am, actually. I haven't actually been to any raves either. I, I'm just not familiar Dude, with it's these It's not Mexican massive... rave. That's <laughs> very do different. That. They don't do that in raves. There's <laughs> no, not a bunch I'm... of people. People okay. on pills no, but there's a can't coordinate that degree. There's an okay. amazing sound system lineup where, I wasted where my the DJ yeah. changes like every <laughs> eight minutes or something. I've never yeah. seen a lineup like it because there's so many people that want to play and it's like Ed Chemical, friend of the show, is, is playing and he's, he's almost just sort of like, catch me at, I'm probably misremembering this here, from 2 p.m. to 8 minutes past 2. And it's just like two tunes or one long one and next. But there's an amazing kind of... um, There is an amazing amount of energy into it and I just feel like just celebrate that moment, that kind of period, celebrate the experience, this huge sort of coming together, uh, which also represents the culmination, I think, of, of all these other marches and all the enormous amounts of activism and... Efforts, you know, people like obviously Naomi's been the, the real, you know, hero on that front, and it just feels like it would be an awful shame to not go, or to go, and be sort of pre-defeated. It'd be insane not to go. I mean, this like is the this thing. is, it's so important to be there, and it also is, again, whatever happens with the vote, it, it also shows, um, it shows a strength of feeling in the country, and you know, one of the things I really hate when people talk about the Iraq war march. They go, well, it didn't change anything. It's like, it did. It has a huge legacy. Mm-hmm. We're still talking about it. It didn't literally stop the Iraq war, but then marches tend not to stop wars, if, you know, if the public and MPs want one. Um, but we're still talking about it. It had a huge effect. Tony Blair is still being asked about it. Like, it, it represented a huge strength of, of, of feeling. There were activists, they're, they're formed, you know, there are activists working now that were formed in Occupy. Mm-hmm. There will be people with whatever happens to Extinction Rebellion who will go on to do really important, useful things. Like, you, you just kind of have to go. I'm just really, what I've seen a couple of friends, uh, you know, on social media, rather kind of downcast, like it's all over. Um, and, and it's like, it, it really isn't, and it certainly isn't all over by the time you're going to be marching down there with, like, hundreds of thousand people mm-hmm. on Saturday lunchtime. I mean, look, and before that, by the way, I mean, to be downcast today is crazy. The first thing you should be doing today is writing to MPs. And if by any chance your MP is one of those wobbly Labour ones, or frankly, even if they're an ERG guy and you want to start writing to them and going like, by the way, these are the things that you said about Ireland, about Britain, blah, 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 you know, then do the job. I mean, right now there's still stuff to play for, so you gun it hard. Mm. And even afterwards, like you said about the connections that you make, part of the important stuff around protest movements and all that are the people that you meet and the networks that you form. Now, if we were to lose, which is very, very, very far away from a, from a far gone conclusion right now, we don't know that. But if we were to lose, those networks are going to prove completely crucial in the months and years to come because mm. that will be the first line of defence against one of the most right wing moments in this country's history. And we will need them regardless of anything else that's going on. So, yeah, you, we can be downbeat on Sunday if we lose for one day. But for the time being, fucking get to work, man. Well, that's the end of the show. Uh, We'll definitely be back on Wednesday. We may well be back with another emergency podcast before then. Uh, Until then, like Ian says, get to work. (laughs) 